friends Rodeos and late night bands History before our time Round pins and pasture rides Cowboys of the Osage Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast, brought to you by the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum, located in historic downtown Pahuska, Oklahoma. It's old Cody over here, and as always, I have my co-host with me, Mr. Rodeo Historian himself, Jimbo Snively. Good morning, Jimbo, and who do we have today? Hey, Cody boy, it's just another great day in Osage, man. <laughs> and Cody, we got the one and only Bob Scott with us today, and uh, Bob was a world-class saddle maker, and made he was a, made saddles for the stars too. You know he he made saddles for Elvis, Merle Haggard, uh, Jimmy Conn, guys like that. He also was a pilot. He flew a private jet for years and flew people around like the Grateful Dead and Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire, all that. And then he was a, a captain for Delta Airlines for like 31 years. And and uh, when he retired from that, he was a baccarat dealer in, in Caesars and knew all the met all the stars and knew everybody and, and he's also a g- good team roper and a steer roper he won the uh go-kart at pendleton for instance and uh just a great all-around guy and uh, we're just really glad to have him take the time out of his day to visit with us today and we're going to get a lot of stories out of him i'm sure and uh bob welcome to the cowboys of the osage podcast well thank you jim i'm just happy to be with you well, we're happy to have you <laughs> thanks for joining us today bob Thank you, Cody. Bob, where'd you grow up at? Cody, I grew up at a little town called Danville, California, which is just east of Oakland, California, and uh, not very far from where the old Livermore Rodeo was, and then moved to Oakdale, California. Well, I went to school in Danville, and then the San Jose Obispo Cal Poly, and then I went to... uh, Oakdale, California. Were you on the rodeo team when you were out there? No, I wasn't. Uh, as, as a kid, I was mainly uh, roping calves and team roping, but uh, I was not on the rodeo team. Who were some of the guys on that rodeo team out there? Well, I had Riley Freeman, and, and he was a big-time calf roper at the time, and Jack Roddy. Jack Roddy, great the, bulldog. Yeah, he was a bulldog, a big old skinny kid at them days. He never was real heavy, though. Even when he was winning in RCA, he was still pretty tall and slender, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Uh, he was always skinny. And he worked every man. I mean, I see him in the bull riding, him in the bronc riding. I made his first bareback rigging for him across handhold. Well, I don't know if it was the first one, but I made him one when we were going to school. He's quite a great individual. He was one of the best guys I've ever known in my entire life. I think he was a recipient of the Ben Johnson Award at the Cowboy Hall of Fame, Ben uh, Jimbo. Really? That, that could be. That could be. He was the vice president of PRCA. And uh, he, he was... He just, in fact, him and his wife, uh, Donna, they just had dinner over here at our house the other night with uh, 
we had Lee Rosser, Cotton Sun, staying with us, and uh, uh, Jack and Donna came over. And we all had a nice dinner. Wow. Um, so he, he's something special. He, he, he lives here in Texas now, over towards Stephenville. Well, that's getting to be the rodeo capital of the world down there, isn't it? Seems like everybody's moving here. Even the like retirees are moving there. Yeah, this guy like Oakdale used to be. Tell us about Oakdale. What what made it so popular amongst the Cowboys? Well, I guess Harley May moved there in the late 50s or middle 50s sometime when he moved there. And he started attracting guys to come. And uh, it, it just was a great place to be. I, I moved there and had a western store right next to the rodeo grounds and started uh, just a repair business. I wasn't a saddle maker at the time. And uh, Clark McIntyre, he came out there one year to, to the Oakdale Kinsteer, and he came in there in the shop, and we got to talking and about making saddles, and he told me I should try it. And he's the one that really talked me into making my first saddle. And uh, I, I owe old Clark a lot for that. And it turned out to be pretty good. Hmm. My, my first trophy saddle I made for the Oakdale Rodeo, 1960, the great Gene Rambo won it. And I have a wonderful picture of me and Gene Rambo. It was quite a thrill just to be with him and, he was always such a nice man. Was that the all-around saddle, Bob? Yeah, the all-around saddle, a little deal. Wow, Gene Rambo, there's a name right there, Jimbo, isn't it? You know, a lot of people think of him just as a team roper because they knew him later in life, but he was a good all-around hand, rough stock, and, and a good bulldog. My grandpa hates for him a lot, and I've got a picture of, of him. Him and Jim Rodriguez Jr. won the – team roping in that first national finals and my grandfather won the steer roping and I've got a picture of them all together with Jane Mayo the uh, barrel she won the barrel racing that year at the final yeah Gene, Gene was he was a gentleman he was just as nice as he could be it really encouraged me to continue making saddles and, and uh, he rode that saddle quite a bit when he first started making uh, bareback riggings how, how were they made Bob? When you made Gene Rambo's, well, I didn't make didn't make Gene Rambo bareback rigging, but uh, oh, I'm sorry, he was riding bareback horse at that time. But but bareback rigging in those days, there was a guy in California named Pete Dixon, and you weren't a bareback rider unless you had a Dixon rigging. And uh, in fact, Jack Roddy introduced me to Pete Dixon, and Pete helped me learn how to make bareback rigging used to make a lot of them, but they weren't anything like they are today with a fiberglass and such. But an interesting note, one time, Bobby Christensen, Christian Brothers, came into my shop, and he had a big old tall skinny kid with him. He said, this boy's going to go to work for me. He says, I want you to get him a new hat, a pair of boots, and some jeans and everything, Get him, we're going to get him started here, and he's going to ride bareback horses and make him a bareback rig. That was Jim Houston. Yep. And uh, Jim Houston wound up being one of the most famous. They changed the, the, the bareback riding rig, you know. He, he was 
quite a quite a guy. Well, that was another historic name right there, Jimbo. The Christensen Brothers Rodeo Company. What do you know about them? Oh, they were kind of they were kind of up in the Northwest. Great. Yes, they were from Eugene, Oregon. They had and, the uh, they had the Great Horse War Paint. I know that. They had the Great Horse War Paint. Tell you a little story about War Paint. Uh, Bobby Christensen. He asked me right right during the Odell Rodeo. He's at Red Muff was the next weekend. And he says, we're going to leave war paint down here. Is there any way I can get you to take care of him for a week? So I said, sure, no problem. It was no big deal in them days. And so uh, he, they brought him over to our house. I said, I live right next to the rodeo ground. He brought him over to the house and, and uh, brought, brought him with a halter that had a big CB on the front of it. And so when they come and got him in the end of the week, they come over there and picked him up again and I guess just brought another halter and put it on him and let him off. And I realized I had that CB halter. Well, I threw it in a trunk and there it stayed for 30, 40 years, I guess. And, but I knew I had it in there. And then Michael gone up there at Las Vegas, he's got that display of bronc riding halters from uh, different contractors on the wall. And uh, so I cleaned that halter up, and I took it up there, and I gave it to Michael Gaunt, telling him that the last horse that was on was a war paint. And uh, it has a big red halter with a CB on it, so it was, it was kind of a neat deal. And I know John Growney, he was sitting there at the table when the when I gave that to Michael, and John told uh Michael, but uh, he just don't realize what he really has. That, that that was something very, very special. Have a war paint halter. Wow, Cody, we've never talked to anybody that actually fed and watered war paint. I mean, that's that's yeah. Like, he wasn't a very big horse, you know. He he was, was, a, he was a small horse, but he was a he was very bulky. What was he like to handle on the ground? Well, you can you could lead him around and everything, but uh, he'd still snort at you and look at you. They had, they had a lot of great bronchs, you know, the Christian brothers. That's about as impressive as making the saddle for Elvis. Do you see anybody ride war paint there when you're out there in California? Do you see anybody ride him at the, one of the rodeos? No, I, I never saw him get rode. Uh, I made another saddle one time for an Oakdale rodeo and put... Uh, picture of Manuelinas, carved a picture of Manuelinas uh, riding war paint on one side of it. And uh, he's, he's got a very famous picture on him, but he bucked off of him. You should have threw a leg over him while you had him there in the corral. Yeah. Just, just to say <laughs> he's you pretty snorty. <laughs> he's pretty snorty. He's pretty snorty. I mean, he was, he was a real bronc, you know. Right. But uh, Hank and Bobby Christian is Two of the best guys you ever was around. I, I became very close friends with Bobby and through later in life, and wonderful people. Who are some of the other famous cowboys that lived in and around Oakdale, Bob? Well, of course, Harley. He's the one that started it all. John Bowman lived there. Uh, you know, John uh, Bowman's from oh, right here in Pawhuska area. Yes. Yeah, he uh, 
Did you know John Bowman? I knew him very well. What kind of guy was he? We we I never got a chance to meet him. John Bowman was a mean individual. I have to say that I'm not talking bad about him, but uh, he was mean and uh, very gruff. One time, not too long after I moved to Oakdale, he invited me down to his place. He had an arena down there. He invited me down there to rope with him. So I was very thrilled and very excited about it. And drove down there and unloaded and got ready to roll. He run them steers in. And he run about four steers and missed all four of them. And he just opened the gate and turned the rest of the steers out and went down to the catch bed and turned them all out. And I said, are we done? John looked at me and he says, you don't see him leaving Whitey Ford in there when he's throwing balls. He says, <laughs> and that was it. I mean, <laughs> I didn't get to roll for him that day. <laughs> Holy moly. That was a, I've never heard that anything like that before. Yeah, he just, I mean, I, I was just a guest, you know. And he just, no, he, Whitey Ford, you know, was a great pitcher for the New York Yankees. Right. He says, you don't see him leaving Whitey Ford in there when he's throwing balls. <laughs> <laughs> he supposedly took a shot at my Uncle Jay up at Cheyenne one time with the rifle. He always had a gun with him, a rifle and stuff. Why he was roping? Yeah, going back in the box, back in the twenties. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's the story I always heard. Hey, your uncle Jay. There, I'm sorry. There's I'm sorry, a Bob. story. Uh, there's a story about John that uh, I don't know how true this is, but it was told to me that one year at Salinas, they gave a silver saddle. This is back in the late thirties, early forties. They gave a silver saddle for the all-around made by Bowling, who was a big silver saddle maker in them days and the Rose Bowl parade guy. Big buckle makers yeah. and stuff, too. Yeah. Famous, famous folks, Jim. Famous guy. Anyway, his saddles, you know, and this was a silver saddle and had a lot of silver on it. John Bowman and Clay Carr tied for the all-around at Salinas. He said that John Bowman took an axe and cut that saddle in half. <laughs> he passed it to, to, to Clay, and he had kept half. And that's why for years and years and years, they never gave another saddle to Salinas. Huh. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard a lot of stories about him, for sure. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, was, he was something. I went to Oklahoma with him one time, took a horse up. Uh, he asked me to to ride along and help drive. So I was kind of excited about that. And we got in the car and there was a box in there that had about a half a dozen apples in it and a box of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and we took off and drove to Oklahoma and that was it. I mean, we, we stopped for gas and then just kept going. And he, didn't, he didn't stop to eat or nothing. He just gone. Yeah. That's that old yeah, style he, cowboy he, in him, wasn't it? Well, he had apple and cheese. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> and he, he lived there in Oakdale. Let's see, uh, Sonny Terman, the great, the great Sonny Terman, he lived there. Who he won the bareback riding in the world. And he was a great team roper. But everybody come there in the winter time, you know, Kenny McLean down from Canada. And uh, now was Ben well, Johnson there? Is that where he ranch Ben from? had a ranch. Ben had a ranch in a little town called Escalon, 
which is 11 miles from Oakdale, and he had a little ranch over there. He'd come up there a lot. Uh, a guy named Virgil Berry, Ace Berry's dad, ran that ranch, and Ace was just a little boy then, and uh, he lived there on that ranch, and Uncle Ben would come up there and stay and rope, you know, and just, He'd come over to the house and have dinner, and he just another another guy roll up the sleeves after dinner was just come let's get these dishes done. That's what kind of guy it was. What did he rope like back then when he was a? Uh, oh, he roped good. He really roped good. John know? Miller said he was the best horn roper he ever saw. Yeah, he, he had a he had a horn loop a little bit different from everybody. He put a lot of action on, a lot of curl in it, and uh, when. Uh, when John, when John Miller came to California, I think it was about 1959, I'm guessing that's the year, that uh, Uncle Ben picked him and George Carter up at the airport in San Francisco and brought him up there. And the first place they stopped was my shop there in Oakdale. So I was the first one to get to meet John Miller in Oakdale. Hmm. And uh, them two kids, they was... 15 or 16 years old, they standing there at attention, just scared to death, you know. And uh, it, it, was, it was quite something to see both of them grow up. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I know George used him up there around Pusco, yeah. or was from Pusco, wasn't he? Yeah, he was born and raised here. I worked for him for several years. Oh, yeah. His, uh, his, his uncle was a world champion steer roper from here, and his dad was also a roper, too. Of course, GR did pretty good too. Made a name for himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, slightly. Yeah, GR. You know, uh, later he, he was born, but uh, yeah, and George, he went back to Oklahoma. John stayed out there, of course, wrote for Ace all the time. And him and you know, they were just kids. They went to Salinas when they was, you know, fifteen, sixteen years old. Yeah, we got a picture of them roping, winning Salinas back there in really? John's case. Oh. And they're both pretty darn young yeah. young men in this picture. Yes, sir. Oh, oh yeah. They were just, just little kids, you know. Well, I wasn't much, much older. I'm about four years older, I think, than John. And three or four. And that? Ace. Ace. I don't remember how. Ace ought to be. I don't know. I'm guess her. Ace is probably 70 now. 71. Hey. He might be one of the most successful cowboys to ever live, really. Uh, Oasis Berry. Yeah. What did he I look know, like? I tore, my knee, I tore my knee up one time. It was at Al Hooper's house. Al Hooper, who was a world champion uh, team roper. We used to go over there and rope all the time at his house. And uh, Ace was wanting to learn how to get off the right side of a calf horse. So I said, well, let me show you here. And I run out there and broke the gas and stepped off and hung a toe in the stirrup and tore my knee up something terrible. And Ace, I remember him because all he could do is sit there and laugh. <laughs> that was funny for him to see me get hurt like that. Hey, who invented uh, getting off on the right? I heard it was Everett Shaw. Oh, I don't know who invented it. You know, I heard it was was uh, Sam Smith's dad, but, was one of the people that really started getting off the right. I heard it was uh, Webster, so there's just a lot of opinions on it. I don't guess we'll ever know. Yeah, I bet the, the area you live in. Could have been show. The, the area you live in probably has more stories uh, of who did it. But, right. But, uh, 
there were guys getting off in the right there in the late fifties. Yeah. Not many. No. A lot of them in the practice bin, but they didn't do it at the rodeo. You know, Dean Oliver was so good at getting under the ropes, and most everybody's getting off the left going under the rope. You know what's striking me is kind of funny right now, Jimbo, is the amount of cowboys from a 30-mile radius right here that ended up in Oakdale, California, right where Bob is. Right, right. Well, California. Yeah, they did. Barry, Right. John Miller, Ben Johnson, John Bowman. Yep. Well, the weather's great, yeah. you know. You just have to put up the people. You know, well, in those days, Oakdale was pretty small. Right, so, no, it was good then. Oh yeah, there was uh, there was one stoplight. Uh, I wound up moving my saddle shop down into town and right there at that stop sign, and and that was the only stoplight in town. You know, Bill Martinelli and Jim Charles and Edson Bob Edson they all lived there, all stayed there. There was a there was a gal that owned the hotel, the Live Oak Hotel, right there next to my shop. And she would let you, if you paid her $365, she would let guarantee you a room any time during that year, stay as long as you want to, uh, for that $365. It might a bet. She wouldn't guarantee a room. She'd guarantee a bet. It might be in a room with four or five other guys or something, but a lot of guys stayed there in that old hotel. Hmm. And it was old and worn out, you know. It's and probably long gone now, isn't it? You know, I haven't been back there in a few years, and I don't imagine it is. It uh, had a restaurant underneath it in the bar called the Live Oak Restaurant. And then next door to it was a, what they call the stage depot, where the bus would come in. And it had a card room in the back. And uh, you can walk in that front part of that store and hear them guys, they wear their spurs in there playing cards, and you hear them clicking their, their spurs together. John Bowman played a lot of cards, Sonny Turbin, they played a lot of cards back there. They have a domino game going on the side while the other no, players you know, play cards? No, they didn't play domino. No, they didn't play domino. They played, uh, they played draw poker mostly. And then... Every year during the tenth year, Oakdale tenth year, which I was a director of, uh, Eric Shaw he'd come out there and ride the bus from Oklahoma. I'd pick him up. He'd come in my shop there, and I'd pick him up. He had a little one little suitcase, and it wasn't very big. And, and he get off that bus and pass it down on the road. Been reading a book or something. I remember him. He'd go and stay at, at Al Hooper's house in, in Escalon. And Clark, he'd stay with John Bowman. And Ike Root, he'd stay with me at uh, at our house. What was Ike Root like, Bob? Oh, man, you talk about a good guy. Ike Root and talk about somebody like to tell stories. He, he'd tell you stories about... In Chicago, going to Chicago, I remember him telling a story about getting robbed in the alleyway back there after getting paid at the rodeo. Hmm. Wow, and, uh, pretty wild. I remember him telling me a story. <clears throat> I'm trying to get this straight. At Madison Square Gardens, 
after the first performance, they wouldn't let you jerk a calf down there. After the first performance, they had Ben Johnson's daddy at jail. They arrested him and took him to jail. Ike said that the, the next morning they had a hearing before the judge. And he said that the judge sitting up there and he said, Mr. Rude, you're here by charge was roping a young cow and he was bawling for his mama or crying for his mama. How do you plead? He said, Ben Johnson senior looked at him and said, yes, sir, you're on a basis, but his daddy was after him. <laughs> you know why? He just laughed at that story. We've heard a lot of good Irish stories. Well, there's a lot of them to be told. He, mm-hmm. He's come there and and one year he he drank pretty good at times, and, and uh, one year he, he'd rope a steer and come back and have a beer. And we'd running the cattle through, and they had a lot of steers, you know, to run through. And he'd run, get on his horse and run another one, and he'd come back and he'd get another beer and he'd stick that horse's mouth, that horse and drink that beer. Then <laughs> they'd go rope another steer. And I'd get the next one. Huh. Oh, and I, there's another good story I can tell you about. I, the first year that he was out there, he didn't stay at our house. He stayed down there in my shop. And we fixed a bed in in my office, just a little cot. has a blankets on it and everything. And so he'd sleep in there at night. And so one day, Clark and Clark McIntyre and Everett Shaw evening, they come there and they took, we had a mannequin, uh, you know, a statue of a woman and had long blonde hair and they put her in Ike's bed <laughs> and put her hair draping across the pillow and everything. I didn't even know it. So anyway, the next morning I come down there and open up the shop, get there about seven o'clock. Ike, he's sleeping outside the office on the floor, got a couple of horse blankets over it. I said, what, what are you doing sleeping down here? Well, he said, Be, he said, there's some lady there in my bed. <laughs> I guess he that mannequin in there. He, he didn't disturb her nothing. He just went to bed yeah. on the floor. Well, he's a gentleman then, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Did you get a practice uh, with Ike, any? Oh, yeah. We were up there, you know, broke away from them stairs all the time. What was a, what was a practice session like with Ike Rude? It, it, it was nothing like it is today, you know. It's just go rope. Just go rope. Do you remember anything specific about the way he roped or how how, how many he caught? Or was he was he a well, great he, great roper? Like you know, could what? Well, how would he compete against some of the ropers now? Do you think? Well, when I knew Ike, he was you know probably sixty years old, and he he'd rope. A little bitty loop, you know, and, and nobody threw across the line or anything, you know, they're halfway down the ring or more down, just get them roped. And, uh, you know, Ike was mainly a, a steer roper, not a team roper, but he dallied good and everything. But, you know, a nine, ten second run was a good run in them days. They didn't have no. I remember. Mike Macy, a fellow here in Oak, in uh, Texas, I seen him a few years ago, and he had an Oakdale belt buckle on. And I said, oh, I see you run 
they'll take me over at Oakdale. How long were you? And he says, we was nine, six, or two. And I said, wow. I says, I, I won a 1960 Oakdale, and I was nine, one on one. <laughs> so that, that's the big difference. And Shaw, he'd rope, you know, and he'd go on a upstairs. He'd, he'd run up there and, and then back off and then come to another, run back up there and rope his steer. Uh, I don't think I ever seen Shaw rope a steer before the middle of the ring. But that's, that's the way it was. The first year they had the tennis steer at Oakdale, the uh, first or second year, the Brankos won it. There was 138 on 10, which is the 13.8 on average on the steer. And now they're down in the 60s, you know. They they said 13 eight. No one will ever. No one will ever beat that. Thirteen average thirteen on ten steers. We were talking to Alan Keller the other day, and he he claims he's one of the first guys to to start throwing a rope. Well, I think the first guy that was ever super successful throwing a rope was H.P. Evans, and H.P. Uh, he can just uh, really zing it out there, you know. And he had a great horse. He had a great paint horse that he rode. And Benny Benyon, he he told me he called me down there to horseshoe one day, and he says, uh, "I'm gonna give you some money." He had a paper bag. He had ten thousand. He had ten thousand in his paper bag. He said, "I want you to try to buy that horse." Or he didn't say try. He said, "I want you to buy that paint horse that that Evans kid ride." And uh, I went to HP, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't sell him. But 10000 in days is a lot of money. Oh, yeah. But uh, HP, he was, he was the number one as far as throwing it. Benny Binion, did he ever try to rope? I never seen him rope, no. I only seen him on a horse a couple of times, you know, just sitting on a horse or something. He had a lot of horses. He the American Quarter Horse Association said that in those days Benny had more horses registered to him than any human being. But uh, he'd buy a lot of horses. He always had me looking for black horses for the stagecoach itch. He had that stagecoach to go around all the rodeos and everything. Bob, how do you... I'm curious how you transitioned from saddle maker to flying jet airplanes. Well, <clears throat> when I was first making saddle, I couldn't make any money. I started a bet, you know, had a lot of business. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't make any money, you right. know, and right. I was drawing $25 a week out of that saddle shop, tried to live on, had a wife and a couple kids. And, uh, Harley, he, he had an airplane. He had a pilot's license. And we'd go fly once in a while. He really got me interested in flying. And so uh, after I sold that shop, I, I was working for a fellow, Ronnie Richards, down in uh, San Luis or in uh, San Juan Capistrano, California, training raining horses. And I quit making saddles. And, you know, I said, I'm going to learn how to fly over here at Orange County Airport. And I remember Ronnie telling me, he said, well, you can't even afford gasoline to come to work. How are you going to learn how to fly? Well, I'm going to learn. How old were so you then, Bob? I was 24, maybe. Okay. 
And uh, so I'd go up there and and I took some lessons and uh, I soloed and wound up getting my private license. And then I, I moved up to Nevada and had a store in Reno. And there was a big flight school down in Minden, Nevada, that where you, you either live there, but that's all you did was go to flight school. Flew every day. I went down there and got my commercial license. And I really got to liking it. And they said, well, if you get an instructor's rating, you, we'll give you a job here. So I did. I went and got an instructor's rating. Uh, took the test and everything. And then they hired me. And so I, I sold all the store and everything. And just went to fly. I just couldn't believe somebody would pay me $13 an hour to fly an airplane. And... I was making money. You got eight dollars if you're teaching this regular flying, or you got thirteen if you're teaching instruments. And, and I was teaching instruments, so I flew there for about a year, instructed there for about a year. And there was a, I got my multi-engine rating, which is an airplane with two engines. And there was an ad in a San Francisco paper that. Uh, this outfit was looking for a pilot for that had a multi-engine rating. So anyway, I flew down there and applied. And they they hired me, and I was executive aviation in Oakland, California. So we moved down there, and that's where I flew a lot of the, the famous people flying for them. And it, uh, I kind of had the fib to them. <clears throat> I only had eight hours in that multi-engine airplane, and when I went down there, because I just got my license, and they said, uh, well, our big trouble here, he says, is uh, we can't hire anybody that has less than uh, 500 hours in a multi-engine airplane because of the insurance. And I said, well, that's fine with me. I said, I, said, I got more than that. And I only had eight. <laughs> they said, okay. <laughs> they said, I mean, God, I thought I probably got 800. Well, that's good. He said, we'll just hire you. So I went to work for him. <laughs> I could have gotten a lot of trouble with that, but that's that's what you had to do to get a job. I worked for them a couple of years, and then when I got hired the airlines, and when I was working for them, who are some of those famous people you flew around, Bob? Well, lots lots of famous people. Uh, of probably the most famous was Bing Crosby at that time. Uh, flew Julie London. Uh, oh, just Fred Astaire, uh, just all kinds of people. And the dead uh, flew the dead quite a bit. The Grateful Dead, they were a bunch of good guys, but they'd smoke that marijuana in the airplane. Everything it was pretty wild. <laughs> Did any of them ever freak out uh, high on acid up there, thirty thousand feet in the air? Oh, on that did. Grateful no, Dead. Did. Well, and the day they were there, like I said, they smoked a little weed in there, but uh, uh, they were good guys, too, and they just wanted to play music. You pull in somewhere, and they'd be, that's when they first started, you know, and they'd, they'd be a, a crowd of people uh, hanging on the fence, and all of them. Then we go down there, and and to the auditorium. One time we went to the auditorium and, and 
Jerry Garcia got me outside and he said, this guy here, the hunter, he's got a reputation that he don't want to pay his entertainers. He said, I want you to act like you're our manager and see if you can come before we go on. So I went in there in his office and I heard talking and I just gave myself 20 years old, maybe. And uh, I said, uh, my boys want to be paid before uh, they go on or they're not going on. And he says, well, I figured something like that. And he reached over behind him and he pulled up a sack that had a, a paper sack full of $20 bills. He handed that over to me. He said, all their money's in that sack. So that, that was it. <laughs> but uh, things are a lot different them days, you know. What kind of guy was Bing Crosby? Very, very, uh, very nice to me because I was flying his airplane. Right, he, right. He, he owned an airplane uh, with a fellow name of, uh, I can't think of his name now. Anyway, uh, Vic Bergeron owned Trader Vic's restaurant. So, uh, and uh, he was very nice, very studious. His children were very small at the time from his second wife, uh, Miss Kathy. And I'd fly him to Mexico a lot. He liked to shoot doves. And he had a house down there at, uh, oh, right before he get to, right out of La Paz, between La Paz and Alfred Lucas. And uh, I'd go to another place and wait for him. And then he went down there and they'd shoot doves. And he fished a lot. He liked to catch the, uh, Marlin and sailfish. He had little tags made that he'd catch them fish and release them. A little tag, a little like a little halter tag, and he'd say this fish was caught by Bing Crosby. <laughs> Turn him loose. But the, he was very, very nice to me. Well, you better be so, nice to the airplane pilot. Yeah, sure. I would be too. <laughs> yeah, we'd come through customs there, and he'd bring a he'd bring ballpoint pens and cigars to them customs people. And the they get us right through. I mean, we we land there. They'd be waiting out on the runway for them. And we pull up there and they'd go, okay, Mr. Crosby, where you go? He'd give them a ballpoint pens and cigars. But, uh, Do you ever have any uh, close calls flying? No, it's pretty lucky. Uh, uh, I flew for a lot of years. And you have things that happen, but you're trained especially in the airlines, you're trained uh, to handle those things, you know, when they do happen. And so, you know, Los Angeles had fires and everything such as that. But it, uh, it doesn't bother you until you get on the ground and it's over. And then you feel the pressure. But uh, while you're doing it, you're, you're just, you're trained like a monkey eating a banana. You know, it, uh, it's pretty safe. Not pretty safe. It's very safe. I think I, so. I was lucky. I got to. I got to fly all over the world and uh, fly the big airplane, the DC-10. And uh, it was quite an experience for an old cowboy, you know. Cause I, I I was agriculture all my life and horses and such and. I'm in there with them guys that have a PhD in the aeronautical engineering or something. 
but it, it was very nice. It was a great career. Started out, you didn't make any money. No thing. I got hired in 1968, and uh, for six months, you only made $500 a month. It's pretty tough to live on that, but you did. And then 31 years later, when I retired, making more money than in two hours than I did a whole month when I got hired. Right. Is that why you moved to Vegas for work? For yeah, Vegas? I was, that's the reason I went to Vegas. Uh, I was based in Las Vegas. I started out with uh, Air West Airlines, and then it was it was sold to Howard Hughes, and it became Hughes Air West. And then it was sold to Republic Airlines, and then Republic was sold to Northwest Airlines, and Northwest Airlines was sold to Delta. So I had about five airlines, but one job, but this different name on the paycheck, you know. Did you ever run across old Howard Hughes when you were working for him? No. No, that's how I started dealing with Baccarat at Caesar's Palace. But, uh, Howard Hughes was looking for a pilot. Now, I had gotten laid off. I'd gotten furloughed from the airlines, Air West. They furloughed about 60 pilots. They go, it's all seniority. They go from the bottom of the list up, draw a line, and those below got furloughed. So we got, I got furloughed. And uh, I was making saddles there in uh, Las Vegas while I was off. And uh, Howard Hughes put out a, a little note that he's looking for another pilot. So I went over there to Ralph Lamb's house. I used to rope with Ralph the sheriff of Las Vegas most every day. And said, uh, I hear Howard Hughes looking for a pilot. Ralph used to be head of his security. I said, could you kind of put a word in for me to fly for Howard Hughes? He said, sure, no problem. And he said, but you know what? He says, while you're laid off in the airlines, he says, you want to make some money, he says, go down there and learn how to deal that Baccarat game, and he says, I'll put you in any hotel in town. You can really make some bucks. So, that's okay. So, I did. I didn't say anything to, to uh, Ralph. I just started, went down there and enrolled at school. and got out. I think it was about a month long or three weeks long. It's all it was. So I said, well, I'm ready to go to work, Ralph. He said, work or what? And he, I said, well, you told me to learn how to deal with a bucket. I went to school, and I'm ready to go. He said, okay. He says, I'll put you down there. At, uh, I said, I'll call my brother. He owns part of the Tropicana. So I'll get you a job down there. I said, well, that's not what you told me. He said that I can have a job anywhere I wanted to. He said, where do you want to go? I said, well, I'll go to Caesar's Palace. Well, God dang, he says, that's that's the greatest job in this whole town. I said, that's right. So he picked up the phone and called out at Caesar's Palace. I mean, it's impossible to get a job there. And he says, Ralph Land, he said, boy, I want to sit down there. So that was, that was it. That's how I got on. I went down there and they hired me. Worked there for four years while I was, while I was laid off. You made your money on tips, your good money on tips? Is that how it worked? Yeah, they, the only do uh, thirty-five dollars a day salary, but uh, the tips was unbelievable. I, while I was there, 
I'm, I received the largest tip known that ever got at those in those days at Caesar's Palace. We had one man from from uh, Seoul, Korea, was playing. He was playing big, you know, a lot of money. And I kept hustling him and hustling for tips, you know. How about one for me? How about one for the boys? So uh, at the end of the shift, they counted it up. He'd give me $44,000 in an eight-hour shift as a tip. You wow. must have been treating him pretty good, too. <laughs> yeah, he won quite a bit that day. He went a little over a million. What's the best run you ever seen someone take take at the casino from a Baccarat game? I've seen a guy win almost $2 million there one day. It's funny thing. He went about $2 million and got up and went to bed and uh, – he, he slept for a few hours and come down. He was waiting for, he had a airline reservation. Anyway, they canceled the flight or something on him. So he sat down and went back to play and he wound up with almost all of them. <laughs> that happened to me one time, Jimbo. I was over there playing the, the roulette wheel and I think I was up like $5,000. I never even had $5,000 at one time in my life. And they went to go get me a player's card. Yeah. By the time they brought that player's card back, I you, was broke. You didn't need one, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they count on that. Is, you know, you see a lot of guys win, but you see a lot, of, a lot of guys lose. Benny Benny told me one time, "You have to have winners." Is as if you know, people think, "Well, they win in and they run another dealer in on us." Stuff that's not really true. You have to have winners in order to be a success because if everybody lost all the time, you'd have no players. Right. He said, that's the reason we put bells on those slot machines out there. He says, because when, when somebody hits a jackpot, we want everybody to know, hey, there's a winner. He might be losing a lot of money, but he won a jackpot. And I've heard, too, that losers won't tell anybody, and a winner that's will right. tell 10 or 15 people, you know, he won, so... They go a long ways. Yeah, there's a story about this old girl out there. She played the slot machines every day. And uh, she came home, and her husband asked her, how'd you do today? And he said, oh, she says, I did great. She said, I just had one of the best days I ever had. She said, I hit 14 jackpots today. And she said, and if I had some more money, I could have hit some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She lost it all, you know, but right. she thought she had she had a great day. Right. You probably seen a lot of people come and go out of Las Vegas. Did you ever run across any of the Rat Pack wayer out there? Well, I've done a lot of cards of Frank Sinatra, and then uh, and uh, Sammy Davis. I flew Sammy Davis a couple of times uh, before I went to Las Vegas. I was in San Francisco, Oakland, but. Uh, I never did get to see Dean Martin. I never saw him at all. But uh, m mostly Sinatra. Sinatra played a lot at Caesars. He he was a headliner at Caesars, and uh, he played a lot of baccarat. Would people uh, approach him sitting there playing baccarat? No, he didn't say play hello? too much to him. He was very nice to me. Uh, he liked to he liked to sit next to me dealing. And uh, he'd come in, and I'd be one of the very first guys he'd shake hands with, come in the pit there. And uh, 
he had a deal. I'll tell you a funny story about it. My favorite Frank Sinatra story. He had a deal with the Caesars Palace in them days that he could bet 12000 a hand. We we had a, a cap on the game at 4000 You could only bet 4000 per hand unless you had special permission to do otherwise. And he had a deal where he could bet 12000 if his attorney was physically in the hotel. If a guy named Mickey Rudin... If, if if he wasn't physically in the hotel, he could only bet six. So one afternoon, about four o'clock in the afternoon, Sinatra walks in the pit, and he's got his bodyguard with him, old Jilly with him, and a couple other guys. And I'm standing there calling the cards in this game, and he says, I want 12000 on that next hand. Well, the boss jumps out of his chair. They had the big chairs on the end of the table, and he come down there, and he says, uh, Mr. Sinatra, he says, uh, we know that Mr. Rudin is not in the hotel. He says, if I can only let you bet 6000 And so doctor turns to me, and he says, don't deal them cards. He turns back to this guy, and he says, I want to bet 12 And they ain't arguing. They ain't getting in trouble. And we only had one player at the table, I said, in the middle of the day. There was a lady sitting there betting, had a little sack of 20s. The minimum you had to bet during the day was $20. She had a little sack of $20 bills. Sinatra and the bosses, they were fighting, and they called down the big guy that ran Caesars down to the pit. Sinatra kept saying, don't deal that card. So this lady, she's sitting there, and she's getting kind of upset because, you know, maybe 15 minutes has gone by. And she hadn't got this player card. And so they was arguing, and Sinatra finally says, well, listen, I'm going to tell you one thing. He says, if I don't get to bet this 12000 on this hand, he says, you better find somebody else to sing them songs because I won't be here tonight. <laughs> and that lady turned around, pushed her chair back, turned around, looked right at Frank Sinatra and said, they'll just call Paul Anka. He can sing better than you can anyway. <laughs> I don't forget it. Sinatra, he turned bright red. I bet he did. Never said nothing to her. And wound up leaving, didn't ever get to bet the hand. But it was, it, and standing there listening to it, it was tough because you wanted to laugh, you know, but you can't. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, she says, that is called Paul Anka. He can sing better than you can anyway. <laughs> yeah, I bet he liked that. Oh, boy. Surprised me he didn't go do all his gambling over there at Binion's. Didn't they have no limit? Whatever your first bet was, that was your limit? Or That's right. Benny had a Benny had a deal on whatever you limited. You, you could bet it didn't matter what it was. No, he not to work at Caesars and the uh, – uh, he, he gambled there a lot. He never never played 21 or anything. He played biker all the time. That's a pretty good deal to if you own a casino and and your, and your headliner's a gambler. It wouldn't be hard to pay yeah. him that night. Well, well, there was a lot of them that uh, went broke there, too. And, you know, I can remember uh, Eddie Fisher there. He, he ran out of credits, you know. And, he, and Harry Belafonte, he ran out and uh, he owed the hotel more money than they was making. 
Well, I knew a guy uh, when I was going to Vegas a lot there, oh, six, eight years ago, and Pete Rose worked there at Caesars in the forum shops signing autographs, and they said he owned, somebody told me that kind of knew, said he owed uh, the hotel so much that uh, he could never quit. You know, they just had him, you know, because he just couldn't yep. quit gambling. You know, he had to bet them ball games. Yeah, there's a bunch of them fellas that had a big problem, you know. Yeah. And uh, sometimes we had quite a few uh, celebrities sitting at the table at once, you know. But uh, Telly Savalas, he gambled a lot there. Uh, let me think, who else there? Diana Ross gambled a lot, and she'd beat you. She, she was very tough. Uh, she played a lot of baccarat. I never understood the game of baccarat. It's uh, all I know about it is usually there were some Asian folks sitting there at that table, and when I'd get up the next morning to go <laughs> go to town, it was the same exact Asian folks still sitting there the next day. That's right. Yeah, yeah, they play, they play, and play, and play. You know, we think of Americans that well, people like Sinatra having a lot of money, but you, they can't start the people from. Asia and from, you know, Iran and over there, that they come in there with lots of money, big time, big credit. You know, have a, I think Sinatra had a $250,000 line of credit or a hundred fifty or $250,000 line of credit. And those guys from the foreign countries, they have up to a million dollars in credit. Jimbo mentioned something when the podcast first started. Saddle maker to the stars. Said you made a uh, saddle for Elvis. How's yeah, that go? Know. How's the phone call go? And what kind of saddle did Elvis order? And well, do you know where the saddle is now? That that That's a lot different than a person thinks. When Elvis came out of, I don't know if he came out of retirement or the first time to Las Vegas, the Hilton Hotel had him booked over there and. uh, one of the executives in the Hilton called me and they said, we want to give Elvis a gift. We want you to make him a real fancy saddle with silver and everything on it. So uh, we did and had it ready for him. I never got to meet Elvis, never got to talk to him, but uh, we made that saddle for him and, and sent it over there. And uh, I don't know whatever happened to that saddle. I'm sure somebody probably stole it. My wife and I, we went through uh, Graceland back there to see if it was there and it wasn't there. So somebody got it. But I wish I, I'd got to meet him. You got any Some pictures of, of that guys, saddle? No. You know, in them days, he just didn't have cameras and he did take pictures of a lot of things. But, and it wasn't that big a deal, you know. Just, it was a singer to come into town. Uh, I mean, they... Uh, they had a big long line waiting for him. People get in there to see him at the hotel, but he's just another entertainer, you know. But uh, the other people, exactly, or uh, famous people that I made saddles for, like Merle Haggard or Benny, would order them from me, and then he'd give them to them guys as a gift. I made lots of saddles for Benny. I mean, lots of them. And he, he'd give them away. He's always going to have me make one for Willie Nelson. I never got to do it. He never did order it. 
Were you going to uh, tool it up with pot leaves all over it instead of yeah, uh, dude, instead of an oak leaf? Well, I was I was really a Willie Nelson fan in them days, and I was really wanting to make it. But I don't know. I was up in Alaska one time, and and Benny called me. I talked to used to talk to Benny every single day, every single day of my life. I talked to him on the phone. And I was up in Alaska, and he told me that there's a fur coat maker there in Anchorage. He says, I want you to go by and see him. He says, I'm having a a buffalo coat made for Willie. Go by there and see how he's doing on it. You know, Willie, Benny had you check on things for him. But uh, I never did get to meet Willie Nelson. Who made that buffalo yeah. coat that Benny wore everywhere? That guy up there in Alaska, I forget his name. Uh, uh, he was in Anchorage. He was a furrier there in Anchorage. Were you around out there when they were when they were going to bomb his house from with an airplane? No, I wasn't there then. That was after me. They they had uh, they had a lot of stories, you know, about about Benny and of course. Most of them are true. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get so well acquainted with him, Bob? Well, I guess through making saddles. Uh, first I ever knew him I, when I was in Oakdale. I had, I'd went to the rodeo at uh, Reno, and Benny's son-in-law, Bert France, who was married to Benny's oldest daughter, Brenda, uh, he had broken his bronc saddle, something was wrong, and he had me take it home back to Oakdale and fix it for him. And while, and the next day he was killed in an automobile accident. And his widow, Brenda, she, I never did know her before then. She called me and told me where to send that title to her. And that's when I first got to know Brenda and Benny. And Brenda just passed away here last month. But, uh, I, I can say I made him a lot of saddles and he introduced me to, I remember ostrich leather he there weren't hardly any boots made in them days out of ostrich and, and he had me making little things their wallets and spur straps and things with ostrich and he gave them away to people he was very generous he sure liked the cowboys and took care of the cowboys did he yes he did he, he liked the western way of life and when uh when the NFR came to Las Vegas, I can say I talked to Benny every day on the phone. It was about 5 o'clock in the morning. He called me. I was living in Phoenix. And he called me. And he said, I got it done. I said, what do you mean you got what done? He said, I got them. The NFR is going to come to Las Vegas. He was very proud of it. That he was a big instigator of, of getting the NFR to Las Vegas. I've heard a few stories on how he convinced them. Not going to repeat them all on here, but I've heard some good no. ones. Yeah, you know, and he paid the entry fees for everybody. He uh, he just was one of the greatest guys. I remember one night, you know, he had such philosophy about it. We was having dinner there one night, and uh, at the hotel at, at the casino, and my wife was teasing him about the people out there playing slot machines spending their last nickel they own and putting it in a slot machine. He said, don't you feel bad about taking all them people's money? He said, let me tell you something. 
He says, you could put some people in the desert. He says, they'd mail their money away. That was his thought. Yeah. <laughs> I liked, uh, back then was his uh, restaurant called the Stockyards Cafe, then? Yeah, I don't remember what the name of it was. There. Stockyard Steakhouse or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah, the steakhouse was up on up on the top floor of the hotel. After he died, uh, he was been gone for a year and a half or two years, and we was out there in the NFR, and uh, we went up there to eat, and there was I think about eight of us at the table, and uh, I told my wife, the bill come around, I got the bill, and I told my wife, I said, you know, this is be the first time that I've ever bought a meal here at the hotel at the, at the Horseshoe because I've always been clumped. Hmm. And about that time, the head maitre d' he come by and he reached over and he took the bill out of my hand. He says, "Mr. Scott, he says uh, that's on us." He says, "You are never to have a bill here at the Horseshoe." And I don't know who saw me or, or how they knew, but they picked up that bill as about. Hundred dollars or so. Hmm. Were you out there during the famous? Uh, wasn't it like a thirty-day card game against Amarillo Slim and someone else that Benny Binion put yeah. on? Yeah. Was it Titanic yeah. Thompson? I, I'm not sure who who it was. I forget who it was. But Amarillo Slim, I remember. And Benny, he didn't really care for Amarillo Slim that much. I don't know what what the deal was, but uh, he had it. He was a big draw, and they started that World Series of Poker there. That was that was Benny's really. He's really proud of having that World Series of Poker, and it turned out. I mean, he would. Well, look at it now. He'd roll, roll over now if he, he seen the way it is. I mean, it's one of the biggest weeks in Las Vegas, you know. Besides the NFL. That's right. That's right. I don't know how big it is. I know several casinos are involved in the World Series of Poker now, Jimbo. Yeah, and here in Oklahoma, they have qualifying, you know, all these yeah. Indian casinos, and you have to qualify to make it to Vegas. You know. Yeah. It's bigger than the USTRC. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, <clears throat> I guess they just moved it to down on the Strip to, to another hotel. It was always at the Rio. And now I heard that they've moved it somewhere. I don't know which hotel they moved it to. But, um, Were you out Benny there for the first gambling? You know, he liked to gamble himself, not in the casino so much. He played a lot of cards. Uh, one time he called me one morning pretty early, and he said, hey, he says, I need your help. He says, with the airlines, he says, I'm out here, and he was in Albuquerque. And he said, I'm here at the airport. And he said, they won't let me on the airplane. He said, I haven't got any ID with me. So I got a lot of money on me, but I don't have any ID. I can't tell them. I told them who it was. They didn't, didn't impress him at all. He says, can you talk to the agent, you know, knowing I'm a pilot of the airline. So I talked to the guy and told him who he was and everything. And they let him on the airplane. But he had about four days to grow the beard. You know, he'd been down there playing the cards. And uh, he never kept a kept a billfold or anything. Uh, or never kept a credit card or anything. He just pulled out a lot of cash and paid for it. 
but they finally let him on the airplane. He had to have some kind of ID, but we got him on. <laughs> what did he do with his gun, I wonder? Well, I don't know. That gun, uh, I have the gun. He gave the gun, or a gun to me. He had more than one. And uh, I have a 32 Smith & Wesson hammerless five-shot revolver that he gave to me. Wow. He used to carry it in his front seat pocket, and I'd make holsters for him. They looked like a, they had a solid piece of leather on the back, and in the pocket it looked like it was a wallet. You could you could see it through the material, you know, just a little square. It didn't look like a pistol, but it was a pistol on the inside. And then I've been with him when he went to get a shave. He, he never shaved himself. He had a barber there downtown in Las Vegas shaving or come up to the hotel room. He'd sit in the barber chair. Before he get in the barber chair, he'd take that pistol out and put it in the lap and put that sheet over it. He was, he was quite a quite a Benny. Hmm. And quite a horseman, you know. Quite a horseman. Yeah. Did uh, I've heard stories of, was it Sheriff Lamb that had the roping ring out there? Yeah, Ralph Lamb, uh, there was a, Whole family of the lambs, and, and Darwin Lamb had an arena where they where they had rope, and but Ralph, the sheriff, he uh, he had an arena there at his house. What kind of guy so, was he, Bob? One of the best guys, one of the toughest men that ever walked this earth, you know. And just he was so good to everybody, and I mean, in them days. It, They'd stop you on the road if you was driving a little bad, had too much to drink. They'd lock your car up, take you on home. They wouldn't take you to jail. They just, you know, if you weren't a criminal, right? You know, he just all had just had the deputy take him home. You know, he's just a wonderful person. Who were some of the guys yeah. roping over there at his house, Bob? Well, I guess. Nip Hogue, he hung around there a lot. And, but uh, let me think here. Angel Crossway, he went to the finals. He he lived there at Ralph's place a lot. And roped with Ralph a lot. Ralph roped it really good himself. Uh, Did Jim call, oh, Jimmy Crawl ever come out there? Oh, yeah, he come out there once in a while. Jimmy. Jimmy, he hung around with a guy named Dean Shandell. He lived on the other end of town. Ralph lived on the north end of town. Shandell lived on the south end. Jimmy, and, uh, he, he, he'd come down there and stay with Dean a lot. They, they would do a lot of them bad things, you know. He's <laughs> into drugs and everything. It, it was a shame at times. And Ralph, he was definitely against that kind of stuff. You know, I read somewhere that even Steve Wynn roped a little bit, and I'd never heard that before. Yeah, that's true. I made two saddles for Steve Wynn, uh, but the sheriff bought both of them for him as gifts. But uh, he did. He did rope a little bit. He'd come out there and rope at Ralph's house. I, I never would have thought that, just, you know, seeing him on TV and stuff. He just doesn't look like the type, but. Oh, yeah, but he did. He had some couple of horses, and he'd come over and rope. 
It seems like being out there in Las Vegas with all these guys, there could be some interesting match ropings pop up, Jimbo. Yeah, I can only imagine. Did you ever see any big-time, high-stakes match ropings out there in Vegas? No, I didn't. In those days, I didn't see anything. Uh, You know, behind the Stardust Hotel, they had a roping arena that belonged to Stardust. They had quite a few team ropings there. But... uh, I never saw any, I can't remember any match ropings. They probably did, but uh, I don't remember any. Out there at Shandell, he, he was a bulldogger himself. He owned part of Caesars. And he was a bulldogger and Keller and Walter White and Bob Orson. They all hung out out there. And, and Dean was the kind of guy that, uh, I flew for him for six years, and he'd pay everybody's after fees and pay everybody's hotel bill. He just, uh, he throw them $100 bills around like the dollar bills, you know. How'd he make his money, Bob? Well, he, I could say he, he owned part of Caesars, but he owned all the slot machines in Las Vegas that weren't in a casino. Uh, he had a company called Corel Coin. And they owned, uh, like, in a drugstore or somewhere such as that, uh, a little uh, small bar or something. Right. He had the concessions of all the slot machines. And uh, that's, how, that's how he did it and how he made his money. Hmm. But he, I remember one time he bought a Rolls Royce and put a trailer hitch on it and dressed Alan Keller up like a chauffeur. So pulled in the rodeo with Keller in his little black hat on and his tuxedo coat and that Rolls Royce. I'd like to see a picture of that. Yeah. Good thing they didn't have cell phones back then, Bob. Everybody was a camera. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? You know, a lot of guys hung out there at Dean's house. uh, uh, and they bulldog a lot. They didn't rope a lot. They bulldog most all the time. Anson Thurman, he said, yeah, out there a lot. A lot of guys did. They like to say, Dean, he'd pay for everything, so they all wanted to stay out there. Yeah. You ever do much bulldogging, Jimbo? No, none at all. Never even crossed my, my mind. I did a little bit, no. but now, now I'm just more of a chihuahua or I'm not much of a bulldogger. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Las Vegas was, they had a lot of cowboys there, you know, uh, the head of the security of Caesars, he was a cowboy, and, and uh, there was a lot of cowboys that lived there, and some of them dealt mostly 21, I think I was the only one that dealt Walker of, but most of them dealt 21. I met, the, uh, I met Ken Loomis out there at, uh, oh, the Sahara. First time I went to Vegas, and he was dealing blackjack. The old team yep. upper, you know. Bucky, uh, uh, what's his name? Bradford. Yeah. You know, he he out 21 at the Sahara. Eddie Akers, he he was the to me one day. She came over there and had lunch in the house. She said, I want you to get 
Eddie Anchorage involved in this Baccarat game. She says, you're making too much money, and I want him to make so. <laughs> so I got Eddie and got him into school, and he wound up going to work for Sahara. He was a great guy. And was, what, two or three-time world champion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the best. I think he won it. Right. The year that Ben Johnson won. 53, yeah, got- one of the most famous years in rodeo. What about Tibbs, Casey Tibbs? Were you around him much well, Casey, in the early days out yeah. in Oakdale? Well, in there, but in Las Vegas, too. Uh, Casey, he'd come over there. He liked to stay at the top. And uh, he'd come over there in Las Vegas. He called me one time from Los Angeles. He said, if you'd pick me up to the airport, he said, haul me down there to the Tropicana. I'm still at the Tropicana. So uh, I parked my car. That was before the, you know, the... Uh, security and everything at the airport you just walk down the gate so I walked quite a ways walked down the gate at Las Vegas here come Casey off the airplane and he had half a mustache one side he had a mustache and the other side he didn't have a mustache and he's grinning you know and I said well tell me about it what's, what's the deal well he says he takes his hand and he pull that mustache, you know, how they do. He said, some of the girls like it, and he went over the other side and screwed it off. He said, some of the girls don't. (laughs) 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 And he come over there to Las Vegas just to go down there to the top just to tell that story to everybody to ask me what the hell the deal was. (laughs) I mean, he was such a, you know, a character, and and he liked, you know, he liked to gamble. He was a degenerate gambler. What did he like to play, Bob? Oh, he played and shut a lot of crap, so played 21. He, I don't think he ever played the locker. He never come down there at Caesars. But, uh, and, and, of course, he, he went to the racetrack a lot, the horses. He liked to bet the horses. Well, there ain't but a great person. No. Well, if you like to gamble, that's the place to be, Las Vegas. Eddie Acres told me a story. That you guys got here about Casey. So they was at New York at Madison Square Gardens, and they was in a hotel there, and they had the window open, and the pigeons used to come in and sit on that windowsill. And he says, Casey made him a snare, and he caught two of these pigeons around their neck. He said, that night at the rodeo, he said, Casey had made friends with a guy that run the light show at Madison Square Garden, up above the arena. So he takes these two pigeons up there with him to this guy's where he's running the light show. And Roy Rogers was the special guy, you know, the entertainer at the Madison Square Garden. And he said, they turned these lights out and here comes Roy riding into the arena on trigger. Shoots his gun up there a couple of times and put the spotlight on him. <laughs> he says, Casey, yeah, Roy shot him a couple of times and Casey threw these two pigeons <laughs> down into the arena from the area up above. <laughs> and he said, that was the funniest thing he ever seen Casey do. Roy probably didn't know anything about it either, did he? No, he didn't yeah. know anything about it. Yeah. He just come loafing in there and shot up a couple times, you know. He thought, how did I hit those? <laughs> 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 
I think that's a great story. Yeah, it's pretty good. There's probably all kind of shenanigans happened out there. Oh, man. You put a bunch of cowboys in New York City for a month. Yeah, give them time to think something. Who knows what's liable to happen. Right. Yeah. Casey Casey was a good guy. He he was a kind person. Come there to the shop at Oakdale, and he parked that purple Cadillac out in front, and 20 minutes, there'd be 50, 60 people in the shop wanting to come in there and meet him, you know. He drove a purple Cadillac? Yeah. I knew he wore purple shirts all the time. Yeah, he had a purple Cadillac. And bucking horses on the doors. And gold plated bucking horses on the doors. Well, I'd like to have that dude now. Oh, I wonder where that's at. Uh, Ain't no telling. Brian with Elvis' saddle somewhere. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Did you put Elvis' name on that saddle? You know, I don't remember. I don't even have a picture of that title. Gosh, dang it. It's been bothering me ever since I heard it. Yeah. Wondering yeah. where this saddle is now. If anyone knows where Elvis's saddle Bob made is, let us know. Cody yeah. wants to buy let it. Let us know. I want to buy, I want to rope out of it. I'm going to start steer roping out of it. The other day, uh, I made a saddle from Merle Haggard's manager. And uh, oh, about a month ago or so, he called me and said that he's only rode it a couple of times and he wanted to sell it. So I bought it from him and, and he shipped it on down here to uh, Texas. And I wound up selling a gal that has a museum up in uh, Oregon. She's going to put it in her, in her museum. But, uh, Oregon, that's a good place. The Pendleton Roundup. Around, uh, that's the greatest rodeo of all time. It is a great rodeo. I like it that they held strong with most of their traditions, and yes, and it's just a, all around. It's one of the only rodeos that I wouldn't mind just going and watching myself right now, Jimbo. I know, and I've never been, but I've, I've always heard it's the best. Did you? Yeah, where you can just walk down there in the, on the grass, you know, and sit and watch the rodeo. It's, it's pretty nice. You and, had and, you had some luck yes. up there, didn't you? Yeah, I won the gold card in '98, I guess I won it. I bet that was a thrill, wasn't it? It was the biggest thrill, probably, of anything I ever won. And uh, Merle did win. And we flew up there. We took my airplane. Somebody hauled, uh, Guy Hawkins hauled my horse up there from uh, Texas. I was living here in Texas. And. Merle and I, we flew up there in my airplane, and uh, it, it was it was a big thrill to win that rope. And, but uh, I don't. Uh, Guy Allen won the won the open rope and won the PRC rope. He had a bad habit of doing that, didn't he? He sure did. He just he just unbelievable. He used to, the guy used to stay with us a lot at our house, and uh, it was just nice to have him. He was always a gentleman. And i tell you a funny story, Guy Allen. Airline pilots, you, you set your state, you know a month ahead of time what you're doing and where you're staying overnight and everything. And I would put on my calendar where I was staying. So my wife knew what where I was in the world. And you I put on there 
like if I was staying in Denver, I'd put D-E-N. And if I was staying in New York City, NYC, you know, the three letters that designate the airplane. Right. And so, <clears throat> guy, he was sitting there at the table, and that calendar was sitting right there by it. And one of, the, one of the places I was staying that month for two Saturday nights was in Fukuoka, Japan. And the three-letter designation for Fukuoka is F-U-C. <laughs> and guy, he kept looking at that calendar. He turned to my wife and he says, the airline pilots, they schedule everything, don't they? <laughs> 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 he couldn't figure out what the deal was, F-U-C. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's funny. That's he's funny. Yeah. What a, he can sure roll. Yep. He can sure roll. You've owned some good horses, too, I've heard. Yeah, I've been lucky in my life. I had the great horse, Scotty, the Bulldog and the horse that was in the Hall of Fame now. And I had the Texaco for Trevor Brazil, who I'm sure will probably be in the Hall of Fame, that horse. Well, that's a... Well, that's one of the only horses, you know, you say the name, and if you know you're talking about horses, you know which horse you're talking about. There's very few horses that, you know. Their name. Most yeah, of the public's on a first-name basis w- with them that knows anything about horses. So, Well, that horse that horse was by Dual Pet, now the Docs Oakmire. Yeah, I bought him as a yearling, long yearling, and his name is Real Cool Duel. That's his registered name. And I brought him home, and I told my wife, I said, I'm going to name that horse Texaco, because that's my little gold mine, my little oil well. I said, that horse going to make me some money. I said, my little gold oil well. And that's how he got the name Texaco. So did you uh, did you train the horse? or No. Uh, a bronc rider named Eddie Howard, he started that horse as a two-year-old. And then I gave him to, uh, we trained him as a cutting horse. And I gave him the Paul Hansel. And he wrote him for three or four months and called me and said, me and this stud, we got a personality conflict. He says, we just don't get along. He says, you need to give him to somebody else because I'm going to ruin him. So I gave him to Mike Mowry, Karen Weatherford. And right before the fraternity, the horse dealer down here, Ben Everson, he had a deal for him. And they offered me 250000 for him as a cutting horse. And so I didn't know what, what to do. And I went to, I had called Winston Dance, a big time cutter here. And we went to lunch and asked him his advice. And he said, Well, if you can afford it, he says, I'd keep him. If you can't afford it, I'd sell him. He says, If I would be a million dollar stud. So I kept him. And Mike went ahead and showed him at the, Fraturity and Boston Cow in the semifinals, so that was gone. And we showed him Memphis and Augusta and placed a little bit on him. And I showed him down in Abilene, and he pinned his ears and run at this horse at a juggler. He just turned mean. He just got meaner neck. So I brought him home, and I was mad at him. I called the vet and I said, Cut him. I said, I'm Turn that. What was a million dollars cut into a $30,000 gallon? So we cut him, 
He was standing there at the fence. Trevor come over the road. He used to come over every week and rope and, and I said, why don't you take that cutting horse and rope some kids on him and do him good before we go back to cutting on him. Kind of give him something else to do. So he did. He took him home with him. And about three days later, Roy Cooper called me. He said, hey, you need to keep let Trevor keep this colt. He says, this is the best prospect I've ever seen for a horse. So I love Trevor. And, and so I said, okay. So I just gave him Trevor. And he kept him the whole time. He still got him. You said but, Trevor uh, used to come over to your house and rope. What is uh-huh. a practice session like with Trevor Brazil? Very serious. Trevor is very serious. You know, we we tied on the sled a lot with the tractor, you know, on the sled. Uh, and everybody be wore out, and Trevor, he keeps just keep going. He just keeps going. And, and he, he started roping in my house. I think he was about 16 years old. And uh, he'd go on team rope then. Then when I moved to Weatherford, he would trip Sears here, and uh, he come over and rope. I mounted him quite a bit on a couple of horses, and I bought a horse from uh, some of their New Mexico, uh, D. Lynn Jones. He's one of the best steer roping horses that ever lived. Trevor wound up buying him from me, and, and then he got a horse called Dollar. He was at uh, New Mexico up there to roping, and the horse fell over with him. He just sitting there on him. He said, they said the horse just fell over. And he's got that disease where skunk feet on some hay up at, right up at Roy's house and never could use him again. He's one of the greatest horses there was. But uh, I mean, I Trevor quite a bit on him and had a couple other horses that Trevor rode of mine. No finer person in this whole world than Trevor Brazil. He's just a great person. But very serious about his practice. He, like I say, he, everybody else would be wore out and he'd be ready to hate this girl. Let's throw him one more time. But, uh, that's, what's, great that's what separates the good ones from the great ones, I guess. I guess it is, because that's the way he is. And a gentleman, you know, an absolute gentleman. Oh, yeah, I've never seen him hardly say a cuss word or anything, Jimbo. If a kid no. a kid walks up to him, he always takes the time to talk to him. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a great ambassador for the sport, and he's a great champion. Right. Yes, he is. For sure. And he's really someone to look up to. He really is. He really is, you know. You know, when we were kids, all us kids would rope the dummy and have dummy matches and I remember roping the dummy with Trevor as a kid, and he took it way serious than all the rest of us at that time, too, Jimbo. That's right. He's always been a serious guy ever since he was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, he's been one of the greatest champions that ever lived. Of course, I think Mayhan was, too, though. Uh, I think Mayhan was one of the greatest all-around cowboys that, that ever lived. Another fine person. I've never met him, but he sure seems like a good guy. I I made a I made a miniature saddle one time for an all around uh, presentation somewhere there in Utah, 
and Larry, he wanted to win it. And he wound up where he didn't win it, but he, he entered every single event at the rodeo. Every event. The bull rider, the little old bull rider, he gets in the bulldog and he got the calf rope, the team rope. Trying to win that title. And he could do it all. I mean, in the bulldog, he got down on that steer as good as anybody. The steer took him in the end of the arena, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he tried. He's got more tries. Great person. I flew a lot of miles with Larry and helped him a little with his flying at times. And he's a good pilot. He had a Cessna three ten old Goldie. Good person. Well, we know you're a saddle maker by trade now, and we hadn't talked a whole heck of a lot about the saddle making. You've talked about all the shops you've had, Oakdale, California, and. Las Vegas, Nevada, and I guess Weatherford now, and you've probably had several other shops. I know you've made the final, the the national finals rodeo saddles. Did you make the world champion saddles too? Yeah, I made the world championship saddle in 72, 73. Made, made the steer open finals, which your uncle won. Yeah, Uncle Joe. One of them. Uncle Joe, he, he won in 72. There, it was held there in Pasco. Yeah, yeah, we've got a picture here somewhere of you presenting that saddle to Joe. Yeah, and uh, the world saddle, and some of those saddles are in the Hall of Fame there at uh, Oklahoma City. All right, the not Oklahoma City, but at uh, Colorado Springs. Spring. Yep. Yeah, you made that saddle. At I know. Alan Cunner won too, didn't you? The World Championship saddle. That was a world championship yeah. saddle, and uh, <clears throat> Alan had me make it. He had uh, he called me before we started making those. And he said, "I'm gonna send you a tree." And he had Benny called Bill Severe, and, and they sent me a Severe tree to put in that saddle. And uh, so it was the only world saddle that's ever been made on a Severe tree. Hmm. Did he do that because he wanted to one. use it? Yeah. I guess. Yeah, he wrote it a lot. He wrote it a lot. But, uh, you ever thought about how much a lot of your saddles are now? They're they're way past a saddle value, Bob. They're all the way oh, up yeah, to big-time collector value, depending on who you made it for. Or maybe yeah, just being one of your saddles might be a big-time collector value in its own. But, you know, Merle Haggard's saddle, Elvis's saddle, James well, Collins' saddle. It. I was well. I, I was down in Florida here about three or four months ago, and a fellow down there has a miniature saddle that I made, and he said he just turned down twenty five thousand for that miniature saddle. It's a half scale, so some of them are worth a lot of money. Uh, I made the hundred year saddle at Cheyenne, and in a miniature half size saddle. And the committee wanted to give it to the senior steer roper. And Mel Potter won it. And Mel told me, without a doubt, it was the finest trophy that he's ever won in his life. And Mel's won a lot. And it had the Cheyenne logo on it, which I had to sign a release from their attorney saying it would be the only one ever made. And... Uh, Mel has, he said, on a, in the dining room table as a centerpiece. 
on a stand. And here, last year, Corey Pesca told me that uh, Mel's got it in his will that Corey gets that saddle after he passes. He's married to Sherry, you know. There's another rope and Oki that moved out west. Yeah. He ain't from here, but he's an Oki. We'll, we'll claim him. The whole Pesca family. Yeah. You've got to claim him. He's, uh, you talk about another wonderful guy. He, you know, I, I make a lot of belts for world champions. I probably made more belts that are on world championship buckles than anybody that's ever lived. And Corey, I made him an alligator belt. And that's what he wanted. And he, he was about the only one that sat down and actually wrote me a letter for that belt. He's just a wonderful person. And a roping dude. Who's the best roper you've ever seen? Oh, that's a hard one. Dean, maybe. We was at Los Angeles at the rodeo in a motel room before the rodeo, and Dean was trying to win the, Dean Oliver was trying to win the uh, all-around for the year. And we were trying to talk him into getting into team roping because he never team roped. And Dean talked with a lisp, you know, and he finally says, boys, he said, I wouldn't trade those two fingers for a full world championship. I ain't getting no team open. <laughs> <laughs> did you go to the NFR when they had it in Los Angeles? Yes, I did. What was that like? What was the atmosphere like? What was the rodeo like? What was the crowds like? Well, it was all well accepted and everything, but it didn't have the atmosphere of a rodeo. You know, the town... It was just another thing they had out there to form or wherever they had it. Uh, it uh, I went there, uh, I was traveling with Harry Charters, bulldogger from in Capitol, from Idaho, and uh, went there, and it was just, you know, just go there for the performance, and that was the idea. It, it wasn't, the, the town didn't get behind it like, you know, he'd do a giant or Pendleton or something like that. You know, Pendleton gets behind their rodeo better than any city I think there is. Their, their streets and everything are decorated. And every day there's something happening downtown Pendleton. And Pendleton is not the most prosperous town in the United States. It's uh, a lot of poverty. But during that week, it, it's really a jumping place. You know, I've done a lot of stuff at Pendleton when we were there during the rodeo, but I failed or hardly remember any of it, Bob. Gosh, dang it. Really? <laughs> yeah, but I made a lot of memories for other people that saw me. So, <laughs> Well, that's, that's the thing. They do they do have a good time there. Yeah, one time yeah, I went yeah. in that letter buck room, Jimbo, after the slack. Actually, the slack was still going on, and I thought it was about midnight. It was noon Dude. when I walked out of there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of like Vegas, you lose track of time. You don't know whether it's daylight or dark. You yeah, know? I think they pump oxygen into the letter right. room, just like they do at the card table. Yeah. Don't have yeah, the box on the wall. They're probably, the letter room at Pendleton is probably the most famous bar and rodeo. Now they have, a, they have a cop sitting out at the front door, and they, when one person leaves, they let another one in. You know, they get some crowded in there. 
but uh, it's quite a place. And downtown Pendleton, too, you know, and other places. By the time that time of day rolled around, I that was it for me, yeah. Jimbo. <laughs> I was really making some memories for folks about that time of day. Somehow I believe that, Cody. I don't think you're exaggerating. <laughs> yeah, they make – you remember the benches they have in front of all the – all the businesses, they have green benches that you can sit on, you know. Yeah, I passed out on one of them once. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what happened. I had a friend of mine. I really wanted one, but a lot of people try to steal them, you know. There was a couple of guys one year that got in big trouble for stealing one. They put them in jail and everything else. I won't tell you who it was, but it, 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 they were steer ropers. <laughs> well, we're the Perfect. outlaws of rodeo. <laughs> And, and but I had a friend of mine go to that company and make some benches. And he, when I won Pendleton, he had to make me a bench to champion roper in Pendleton. It was it's pretty nice. I got it there in the house. Did they put your name up on the side of the grandstands when you won it for the next year? Yeah. No, they didn't for the for the gold card. They didn't do that for the. the what the heck? What's going on up there? Yeah. Yeah, I said something to Dustin there, and he said, you know, we didn't think about that. We should have done it. Well, Bob, normally Jimbo asks this question. I'm going to ask you. Mount Rushmore of ropers, period. Just ropers. You can only pick four to go on there. Well, you got to have Roy and Roy Cooper and Dean Oliver up there. You know, you just have to have them. There's you two. And you got to have Trevor Brazil up there. It'd be hard to leave him off. He couldn't. And then the fourth one, there's so many. Let me see the fourth one. What about Bob Crosby? Well, I'm saying I never was around him, so I'm yeah. sure he was great. But I wasn't around George Washington either, but he deserves to be on Mount Rushmore. Well, you're right. As I don't know. I don't know. As far as the character or something, you know, I crewed needs to be up there, but. But, uh, I think he should be on there. There's so many great ropers. But, uh, you know. It's hard to uh, narrow it down to four, that's for sure. Yeah, it is, you know. You know, they don't have to be a world champion either. One of my favorite ropers, J.D. Yates, just as far as a pure roper. That's right. I've got more talent. You know. The greatest... To me, the, the most enjoyment run I've ever seen just watching the steer open was one time at the Windy Ryan. Pete McIntyre had switched over to the right-hand side. He was always left-handed, and he switched over to the right. And he drew a steer, a run out there, and he run to the left, and, and he roped him, and he was close to the fence over there on the left. He flipped that rope over that horse's head, laid the left hand and tripped off him, got off the left and back tied him. And that was the most exciting run I'd ever seen in my life. Somebody doing something like that. I saw James Allen do it at Cheyenne one time when I was a kid. Really? Yes, sir. Steer was on the left fence. He just threw his trip over there on the left side and went right and tied him down. I've seen, really? one, I've seen yeah. it once or twice. I can't remember who did it. That's the only time I've ever seen it. I've seen Gerald Camarillo rope a steer on the fence healing 
Luke is Quill, James is a good left handed ballot left handed. But that runner, I, I'll never forget that runner, Pate. He was something else. Got a standing ovation. Well, he can handle it too. Yeah. He can wanna, rope just he yeah. can rope way better left handed than he can right handed. Yeah. We, we don't want to tell him or we get the big head. <laughs> he oh. can mind see you guys. Yeah, we, we did a podcast with him last summer. He's, he's quite a character. Actually, word on the streets, you matched one of our local guys one time, Delbert Kyler, in a match steer roping. Yeah. Where yeah, was that at? A, I think that was in Amarillo. We had a, I think it was a five-steer match. And I was lucky enough to win, but uh, I think we rolled for $2,000. Delbert, he was another fine fellow. He loved the sport of steer roping, that's for sure. Yes, he did. He was a good friend of mine. I sure miss him. Yeah, yep. I miss him too. You know, HL Todd, we lost here this year. Another yeah. great steer roper. Great supporter of steer ropers. Had a good horse too. Oh, what was his name? That big road uh, horse. Yeah, big road horse. One horse of the year. Rooster or something like that, maybe. I don't know. I get to be around a great steer roper here in the Leatherford a lot of it Arnold Felt, but Arnold and I are really close friends and like he might be as much as my best friend I could call my very best friend and go down there and stay with him at his place. He lives in Dublin with the only hour away. Boy howdy, that's someone that we could should consider on that Mount Rushmore of just ropers. Old smoothie. That's for sure. That guy could rope calves good. He could rope steers good. Yep. I never saw him he bobble knows. too much. No. I don't well, know. He's the only person. He's pretty the only sure he's person one of, I'm pretty sure he's an Oki, too. <laughs> you better not tell him that. He's, he's a true Texan. He lived in Oklahoma but, for quite some time. Yeah, he did. That's when he really He's the only person that yeah, ever won six rounds at the NFR. I don't know how many times he won all around at Cheyenne, but it just seemed like every time he went up, he won all around. That's right. That six rounds, he was riding old Santa Claus, gray horse. Yeah. Yeah, he ran, ran I think his first year or something got up on him at the end of four, and he won the next six rounds in a row. What do you think about these Cowboys nowadays? They're really making a living at this deal, it seems like. Well, they're out loose today, you know. Or, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I don't think they go out and party and drink and everything great hell like we used to do. I don't think they do. Yeah, I used to go on that Phil Rough rope tough model on that next morning slack, Jimbo. Yeah, right. right. How far did that get you? Well, you can see how far it got me. Not very far. <laughs> <laughs> I made a museum Well, I made all the memories for people that right, I don't right. remember, Jimbo. Right. You know. I, I've been around a few world champions later on, and, and they're all gentlemen. And they aren't rough and tough like they used to be. I mean, they, they are, but they, they don't they do not do that thing that we used to do. Well, it's a lot more serious game now. Horses are costing $100,000 plus. Rigs are costing $200,000 plus. That's right. Diesel's $5 a gallon. Yeah. Some of them got two and three rigs on the road. Yes, sir. It's a serious game now. 
serious money up for grabs, especially if they make the finals. Things are looking I up for Cowboys. Flying, I remember flying Trevor one time to – I picked him up at the airport at Oklahoma City. He got off an airliner, and he called me before that, flying to Oklahoma City. He had to get to Kansas. And so I picked him up there at the airport. And, I mean, really rushing and going and got up there and steers were in the shooting and he jumps on some horse and runs out there and misses the steer. Come back to, oh, we can go now. So we got an airplane. I said, doesn't that bother you? And do all this, you know, running around. And so, no, he said, that's just part of it. He said, you're going to miss a few. And then he didn't even think second about it. We flew back to Decatur, I guess, or somewhere. He was—he's quite the competitor. Well, that's a good lesson for everybody that he's yeah. just thinking about the next one already. Instead just thinking of about the next one already. Yeah, in fact, I think we flew the maybe the Pecos. Uh, probably won two events in the all around that week. Probably. Probably. You know, I think he won Pecos on his permit, Jimbo. Really? Mm-hmm. Soon as he cracked out, he just started winning everywhere. Yep. I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, he did. Never stopped. Bob, what's your favorite thing to tool on a saddle or a belt? I mean, what, pattern? Yeah. Oh, just the wall rolls, I just. I'm kind of known for my tooling, and, and uh, I tool a lot on that wild rose. Kind of like the same as Don King tooled. Don is a very close friend of mine, a wonderful person. And, uh, that wild rose, is that, that what they call a Sheridan flower up there? They do now, yes. Uh -huh. They call that a Sheridan flower. That's my favorite tooling. I didn't know that you were known for yeah, that. that. That's what uh, Don taught uh, tooled a lot and uh, I make a belt nowadays that uh, like a 36 inch waist person there'd be about 42 flowers on that one belt about the size of a nickel how far out are yeah. you if someone was to order a belt today or anything from you how, how long till they get it three to four months that's not as bad yeah. as I thought, Jimbo. That's not too bad. No, that's, that's about right. And I don't hustle the business like I used to. And, and uh, me and I just have one other fellow helping me. But I tooled that belt, and, and that belt's expensive. It, you know, when I first started making belts, I'd get $6 for a belt. Now that belt's 800 But most belts are around 200 to 250 well, you get what you pay for. I That's bet right. it's the best eight hundred dollar belt. It's probably worth sixteen, fifteen, sixteen hundred in reality if he's charging right. the eight. I just, I it's just the guy made, that made Elvis' for, uh, saddle, by God. Right. Well, I just made one for uh, Justin McKee, another Okie up there. Oh yeah, I see. He's wearing it, wearing it on the Cowboy Channel. I see it's got his brand on the tip. It's oh, that's that good tool belt that he wears. Yeah, it's hard not to notice that thing. Yeah. I just finished it a couple months ago for him. Then I seen him out there on some other show, and he was wearing that belt. 
you know, out in the field or something, doing something instead of being a, dressed up. So I made him a work belt, and I sent him a work belt and I, as a gift. And I said, here, you wear this every day. Don't be wearing that high-dollar belt every day. Well, Bob, He's if you Oh, yeah, He's Justin McKee has. He really has. He's pretty much the face of rodeo right now, I'd say. Yes, he is. He's, he's just a wonderful guy, and, and uh, uh, he's really helped the rodeo world. He's a good face for it, too. People can relate yeah. to what Justin has to say. Mm-hmm. He puts a, he puts it all on a good in a good way of light, and, uh, you know, he's one of us, and we're real proud of him. Well, most people don't realize he holds a record in time to pass this year, Cheyenne. Yeah, I was there that day. I was there yeah. that day. 10.3. Yeah. 10.3. He's won second at Pendleton twice. The guy ropes good. He showed yes, Webster's he nephew, isn't he? Yes. Yep. Yes. I'd have roped good. It's in his jeans. Yeah. 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 Well, Jimbo, you got anything else for Bob today? Oh, just thank him for sure. And we've really enjoyed it. And man, Bob, you've done a lot and got a lot of stories. You ought to think about oh, writing, a, writing a book sometimes. Too many stories. You know, yeah. Too many stories you can't even tell. Yeah. <laughs> you can put them in a book, Cole. I guess. <laughs> Some, somebody might get mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get up here to Pahuska ever, come up here and see the Ben Johnson Museum. You're invited well, up. The year I made the that saddle that your uncle won, I stayed there at the Pahuska Hotel. And one of my favorite memories, I have a key collection from the, all the hotels that I've stayed in around the world. That's probably over 200 hotel keys. And I have one from that old Pahuska Hotel that burnt down. It's a, it's a very prized possession of mine. Did one of those, like a skeleton key or something? Or? Yeah, it's an old skeleton key with a great big key fob. You know, it says Pahuska Hotel on it. Hmm. It's really something. I, I, I told that to Justin the other night. We had dinner with Justin the other night. I probably wind up giving that key to him because he, he likes things like that. Well, if you don't it, give it to it, him, just go ahead and send it on up here. We'll, no. We know a good place for it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's quite a souvenir for us with Techno Oklahoma. Yes, sir, for sure. Bob, thank you for being on the Cowboys of the Osage podcast with us today. Okay, well, I hope I didn't talk your leg off there. No, it was great. No, it was great, Bob. We loved it. We loved every minute of it, and uh, we're just proud to know you. And if anyone needs a good belt or a saddle, give Bob a call. Bob Scott, Weatherford, Texas. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. All right, we appreciate you too, Bob. Thank you, guys. Thanks yes, sir. Have a good one, man. Adios. Old stories like long-lost friends. Rodeos and late-night bends. History before our time. Round pens and pasture rides Cowboys of the Osage